Uh, the title of today's message is Why Church? Brad pointed out that we are uh, shifting into this uh, message today, and this isn't a series or anything, this is just a one-off thing. So this is coming out of the series that we've been doing before, and this kind of connects to some of the stuff we've been talking about before, and it also connects into some of the things that we're going to be looking at in the coming weeks, uh, and I think, it, I think it'll help us to understand a few important things quite well. So uh, this question of why church, it's an important question. It's a question that itself can be heard in all sorts of different ways, depending on where you're coming from, depending on your understanding, depending on your experience. And uh, this is a question that more and more often is getting asked, especially among evangelicals, among Protestant evangelicals, this question of why church? Why is it relevant? Why is it important? That sort of thing is getting asked more and more often. So just to uh, sort of test the waters and see what was out there, when I was preparing for this and thinking about it and praying through it, uh, I did some searching around on, on, through libraries and the internet and different sorts of things. And just as soon as you kind of search this idea of why church or something along those lines, just right away a whole mess of articles and books and websites and all of these things come up. And they all have, have ideas of, uh, you know, they're asking questions like, why belong to a church? Is church membership important? Uh, is the church worth it? It was one of the first articles that came up. Uh, Is it relevant? Is it still relevant in today's modern world? And so this question of why church is uh, likely something that you've encountered, or you yourself have maybe asked. You've heard somebody ask to you. Maybe you haven't known how to respond to that, or maybe you have. Uh, But this is a question that likely several of us here are familiar with. Why church? Why church? Uh, But the thing that I find really interesting about this question, the more I thought about it, the more I kind of delved into it, is how much easier it is for us to ask these sorts of questions, church-related questions, why church, those sorts of questions about the church, than it is for us to ask all other sorts of questions about the Christian faith. Far easier for us to ask those sorts of questions and not feel like we're doing anything wrong, that we're crossing any sort of line, or that there's anything weird about that question in itself. You know, it's far easier to find people saying, why church, why is it relevant, why does the church matter, than for them to say something like, for example, why does the cross matter? Or why does sin matter? Or why does the Bible matter? You'll, you'll find those questions for sure, and different people will discuss them in different ways, but the why church question is something that comes up a lot more often. And the uh, results to the question, the responses can be, fairly discouraging sometimes. And I think that's interesting. You know, it's a unique sort of phenomenon. So I wonder, what's the reason for that? What's the reason why this is something that's going on? What's going on these days that makes it so easy for us to be skeptical, jaded, cynical, perplexed about the church? It's so easy for us to ask this why church question. Uh, So that's the first thing that I, I, I want us to think about this morning. That's the first kind of question is to step back and now, now we're taking a step back and we're not just saying, why church? We're saying, why, why church? Why is it even possible for this question to be coming up so much? What's going on? What's in the water that's making it so that this question's coming up so often? And there are all sorts of contributing factors to, to an issue like this. You can look into this a whole lot of different ways and come up with a lot of different responses. Uh, you can answer it from a whole lot of different angles. But one angle that I, that I found particularly interesting and this is just something that I'm going to kind of float out there, and we can kind of see how it, how it lands, is just this sort of angle. 
We as Forest Grove, we, we, we're a Mennonite Brethren Church. We're a Protestant evangelical church. That's the stream that we're in, broadly speaking. And we exist as a Protestant church because in the 16th century there was a Reformation. The Protestant Reformation. And uh, when, when historians and theologians have looked back on some of the things that were going on during the time of the Reformation, some of the central ideas and thoughts and themes that were coming out of it, they often acknowledge uh, five pillars. You might have heard of them as the five solas, five key ideas that the Reformers often emphasized. And just to quickly bullet point through these, these are the five things. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, and finally the glory to God alone. So these five things together are known as the five pillars of the Reformation. Uh, So without getting into this too much, the point is that at the time of the Reformation, these pillars, these ideas, they all pointed to things that the Reformers believed didn't need any supplement. So obviously, it's not just these things alone, because you're listing five of them, so they all go together. So it's Scripture alone, not the authority of a council. Faith alone, not works added onto it. So they thought that these things could stand on their own without any supplement added to them. And uh, even though we, as a Protestant church, maybe we don't emphasize these five pillars explicitly, very often. We, we might not talk about them too often. You might have not heard of them before. But I want to offer the idea that these emphases in general, these general themes and ideas, very much make up the background of what is assumed, what is central, and what is just presupposed in a lot of the Protestant evangelical church, including ours. They make up a lot of what is assumed, what is central about the Protestant evangelical faith. And here's the thing that I want us to see. Okay, so we list off those five things. Here's the thing that I want us to see. To see. Notice how easy it would be for a good, a quote-unquote good evangelical Christian to base their faith and life and devotion on these five pillars and have absolutely nothing to do with the church. I, like, I found that interesting when you kind of think about this. So, take it through, for example. Scripture alone. I read my Bible every day. I try my best to do what it says. Faith alone, I absolutely know that I'm righteous before God, not because of anything I do, but because of faith in Christ alone. Grace alone, so this this is all a gift of grace. It's freely given to me. I didn't earn God's love. I didn't earn his approval. Grace alone. Christ alone, my faith is entirely rooted in Christ alone. We sing in Christ alone, my hope is found. Absolutely Christ-centered. Fifth, glory to God alone. I try my best to worship God, give him glory in absolutely everything. Do I belong to a church? Maybe, maybe not. I could easily say no. I could say yes to all those things, and I could quite easily say no. It might not be a healthy response to say no to that, but who said anything about church? That didn't come up there. Other people didn't even come up there. The idea of otherness of community, didn't even come up there once. Now, I'm not at all saying, not at all saying that these five pillars are wrong or untrue or bad or anything. Perhaps they were the exact right things that needed to be emphasized at that moment in time. Perhaps. And perhaps we interpret them far more loosely than the reformers themselves ever intended. But, I think that we do need to be very cautious whenever we're talking about things that are central to the Christian faith, 
Not, not because it's bad to talk about things that are central to the Christian faith, but we need to be cautious simply because we're often unaware of what we're underemphasizing as a result. We sometimes don't catch that. We don't notice that. And what I'm trying to suggest here is simply that it's because generally, generally speaking, Protestant evangelicalism has underemphasized the role, the importance, the centrality of the church that it's so easy for us to underemphasize it today. And I think there's a good case that can be made about that. And quite frankly, I think that this is just a blind spot that we all need to acknowledge and we all need to be aware of, plain and simple. We need to be aware of it and we need to try to think of ways to remedy it and just to keep our eyes open to it. So there's a lot more nuance you could add to that, a lot more reasons we could give, but it's important just to be aware that the reason why, the reason why these why church questions seem to be cropping up more often, the reason why these are cropping up so often has to do with the nature of evangelicalism itself and some of the things that have historically been central to it. Uh, many of the things that are put forward as central to evangelicalism can very easily be construed and interpreted in a very individualized sort of way. The reformers didn't intend it to be interpreted that way, but it's very easy for us to do that, given the world we live in and the environment that we're surrounded by. So, okay, that's, that's kind of the clearing the ground sort of work that we have to do in advance, just to make sense of some of this stuff. Uh, just the fact that it's easy for us to ask those sorts of questions because of the nature of evangelicalism a little bit. Uh, but before we get into a response to the why church question, I really do think that it's important to uh, commit ourselves to not going down a certain path here when we answer this question. I think it's really important not to answer this question by simply listing off all the things that could be potentially good or helpful or nice, or therapeutic, or beneficial about the church to us, the way that we perceive it. And we do this far too often in our thinking about the church, I think. So what I'm saying is, those sorts of things, when we list off what's good, what's beneficial, what's helpful, all those sorts of things, those things answer the what's good about church question. They don't answer the why church question. There's a distinction there. There's something different that's going on there. It's like a biologist answering the question of why food by saying, well, because it tastes good. It's great that food tastes good. That's a wonderful thing. That's absolutely great. But it doesn't answer the why food question. That's an incorrect response. That's not a helpful response. It's great that food tastes good, but the answer to why food is because without it you die. That would be a more faithful, more clear, more direct response to that question. And in the same way, if we're asked why church, if we're asked why church, the answer cannot simply be a list of the things that we might think are nice about the church. However fantastic they may be, however beneficial they may be, however much they blessed us in our walk with Jesus, a particular pastor, a sense of community that I like, a program that I appreciate, all those things are fantastic, but that cannot, those things cannot be the answer in and of themselves to the why church question. And uh, when you really think about it, there's a real selfishness to answering the question that way. Because it's one thing to say, okay, why for you do you find church interesting or attractive? And you can do that. But the why church, the broad question of why church, there's a sort of selfishness when we answer the question that way. And uh, even worse than that is the fact that when we answer the why church question in that sort of way, what we do is we make the church into merely one option 
among many on offer in a whole plethora of services that are being offered. And we do that all the time. All of us do that. I'm very, I'm very convinced that all of us do that. You know, I'm, I'm looking for community, and I like the way that the church or this particular church happens to provide that for me, so I'll stick with this church. Or I'm, I'm looking for something else. I'm looking for a certain emotional experience, perhaps, for now. And right now, the church is doing the trick, so I'm there. I'm good with these guys. But the important thing to recognize is that the church is not at all fundamentally, definitionally, a service provider that you can take or leave depending on how it performs. That's not the sort of business the church is in at all. To treat the church that way is to, is to treat the church as one option among many services. I'll kind of see how it does in providing this for me, and if not, I'll move on to something else. It might not be religious. It might not be Christian because it'll give me what I need. And you move on to something else that provides that for you. And that's a real danger because that's something that's happening more and more and more often in the world today. Is we, kind of, we name these good things and we're, we're so pumped because we name these beautiful things that we experience in the life of the church. But they're these things that don't actually have to do with the nature of the church itself. And we miss out on who or what the church is on a fundamental level. Because fundamentally, biblically, historically, the church is the people who are called by God. The church is the people given the Holy Spirit, entrusted with and shaped by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and are appointed for a task that God in eternity past decided would be reserved for them and them alone. If you have a Bible with you, you can go to Ephesians 3. I'm going to read starting at verse 7. So Paul's writing this letter to uh, the Ephesians, and he says this, starting at verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. So the answer to the why church question always, always, always has to be bound up with mission, with task, with purpose. And it has to, because like we've said, the question is fundamentally asking not, tell me what's good about it. That's not what the question is getting at, but tell me why it exists. Tell me why it's relevant. Tell me why it has a reason for being. And then we hear Paul say, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Paul's talking about big things in this passage here. Big things. Lots of times he talks about the practical do's and don'ts of the Christian faith, but here he's thinking big. And he's thinking broad and majestically. He said, I was made a servant of the gospel, and I was given the grace to preach the unsearchable, Riches of Christ. Unsearchable riches of Christ. 
and to bring to light the mystery hidden in the God who created all things. Thinking very big. And throughout the book of Ephesians, throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul frequently refers to mystery. That word comes up a lot. The mystery of Christ, the mystery of God's will, the mystery of the gospel. But when he says mystery, he's not, he's not referring to something perplexing and something vague. He's not referring to something that's hidden, that's undiscoverable. When he talks about mystery in Ephesians, it's always in the context of something that was once hidden, once out of plain view, and now plainly revealed through Jesus Christ. That's always how mystery is referred to. In uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he refers to it as the mystery of God's will, as a plan for the fullness of time to sum up all things, all things in heaven and on earth under the head of Christ. So again, he's thinking very big here. And that's the mystery that's been revealed, is this plan of God to sum up all things under the headship of Christ. This is big stuff. This is literally secret of the universe sort of stuff that he's getting at. He's trying to say this is God's plan from eternity past, and it's all summed up in this sort of way. And Paul's saying, now this is all revealed. This is all laid open. This is all completely wide open for people to see. Jesus Christ is the key to it all. No other secret, no other trick. Jesus Christ is the key to it all, and it's the church. It's the church that's going to be the means through which God reveals his multifaceted wisdom to the rulers of the heavenly realms. Not just an earthly thing. Not just a temporal thing. The rulers of the heavenly realms. Big stuff. And that's why church. That's how Paul would answer the why church question. Because it's the church alone, called by God, indwelt by the Spirit, transformed by Jesus, that is given this utterly, utterly unique task of revealing the mystery of God's plan in Christ to all. All creation, all the universe. And if that sounds big, if that sounds gigantic, if that sounds overwhelming, I think that's good. Because I think that means we're starting to get the huge honor and the huge priority of this task in a way that Paul perhaps wanted us to get all along. Proclaiming the gospel of Christ, making known the mysteries of God. This is the one thing, like we need to understand this, this is the one thing that only the church can do. This is the one thing that only the church has the responsibility to do, that is able to do, that is going to do, that God has planned to do. Anything else that we do as the church, however important it might be, however important it might be, and they are very important things, can be done and often are done better and sometimes in more robust measure by other groups and institutions, by other people, by other organizations. They're not unique things to the church, and that's okay. And we should applaud that, and we should be okay with that. We're not in competition with that at all. And I just want you to understand, this does not at all, at all mean that all the other activities and aims of the church are unimportant. Not by a long shot. It doesn't mean that. But it does mean that it's to our shame And I think it's to our disobedience when the secondary things become primary and the primary things become secondary or tertiary or even more or lower and lower and lower on the priority list. And throughout the history of the church, that's something that's happened time and time again. Priorities that get mixed up. And all the time is when God has breathed new life back into the church or when people recover that absolute priority of this one task, this mission that God has granted to the church, that only the church can accomplish. No other organization, no other group, no other person. Uh, 
famous theologian Emil Brunner, he writes this, It is not the primary task of the church to create, to change, to improve the social order. The task of the church lies beyond any social order because its task is to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God, which transcends all social orders, the good and the bad alike. So notice, he's not saying that this is something that's wrong to do. He's not saying to not get involved in worldly affairs. Not at all. He's saying that is not the primary task of the church. And there's this sense of responsibility there not to shirk the absolute primary task of the church. This is the task of the church, and it's because this is the task of the church that the answer to the why church question can actually be another question. We can answer this by saying, who else? Why church? Well, who else? Who else will or can bring the gospel of Christ to the surrounding neighborhood, city, and world? Another thing to take note of in all of this, we've been emphasizing this this idea of task, of mission, This is something that's unique to the church, and we need to keep that in mind. Uh, We've talked about how this always has to do with the unique purpose of the church. But But we can hear all of this stuff, and as good Protestant evangelicals, we can say, well, you know what? It's my faith in Jesus that makes me part of the church. It's my faith in Jesus that makes me part of the church, whether I'm actually with other people or ever encounter other people, other Christians, meeting regularly, doesn't really matter. Faith alone. In some senses, that's a good and true thing to affirm. But in this sense, it's not a good thing to affirm. So a couple thoughts in response to this. First, in, uh, in two weeks, we're starting a new series, and we're going to be dealing specifically with how, many, how, how the many members of the church are to relate to each other. So we'll talk about that more then. So we'll get into that stuff a little bit more then. And second, uh, it's interesting to note that in the New Testament, the word for church, ecclesia, this word that's used for church, it literally means assembly or gathering of people. And the word is only ever qualified as being either a church of God or of Christ, a church of God or of Christ, and a church of a place. Those are the only two ways that the New Testament authors ever qualify a church. Uh, Even in something like Paul's letter to the Galatians, we often casually refer to it as, okay, this is Paul's letter to the church of Galatia. And we'll kind of say it that way. But if you actually look in the text, Paul actually addresses it to the churches of Galatia. Several assemblies, several gatherings that are scattered throughout this region to the churches of Galatia. A church in the New Testament sense is always God's gathered people. In the biblical sense, and there's lots of other ways we can understand that, but in the biblical sense, it's always God's gathered people. And uh, we, we sometimes use the phrase, be the church. When you leave from here, be the church. And, and there's definitely a good motivation behind that, and there's some good logic behind that. Uh, But the New Testament authors would never, ever, ever tell an individual to go out and be the church. They would tell them to be a member of the church. They'd tell them to be part of the church, but never to be the church in and of themselves. In conclusion, this idea of God calling a people, God calling a people and calling them to a task, a mission, is a thread that runs throughout Scripture from the call of Abraham in Genesis right through to the vision of heavenly glory at the end of the book of Revelation. This is something that's all throughout Scripture. And to close, I want to read uh, through this passage in Revelation chapter 21. It's this beautiful passage, and it it just beautifully, beautifully pictures the end goal, the ultimate purpose for which God himself calls a people. There's this idea that God wants to dwell among his people. That's there. 
So just all these things we've talked about, about a unique people called by God to a unique task that only the church can accomplish. Think of that and just keep this in mind here, starting at verse 1. This is John's vision of the new heaven and the new earth. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for all the former things have passed away. Pray with me. God, we just thank you so much that you've called us to be your people. We thank you for this vision of heavenly glory that we can look forward to. And Lord, I just ask that you can help us to understand the absolute unique vocation and task that we have as the church, as the called out people of God. Help us to be aware of your grace that motivates us to be that people. Lord, just when, when we have that question posed to us or in our own minds of why church, let the first answer always be who else? Who else is going to accomplish this purpose that God has uniquely given to the church to proclaim the mysteries of God and just the fullness of the gospel to the world around us? So let us learn from you. Just help us to be good uh, children of yours who learn from you well. In Jesus' name, amen.